Thank you, William. You guys, if you weren't at Sunday school today, then you super missed out because Will and Becky talked about why they're taking the gospel to Cambodia, and they crushed it. It was such a fantastic time, Will. I don't know where Becky... Yeah, I hope so. We record it every week, so it should be. You guys should check it out. Go to chsroanoke.com. Go to Sunday School. Oh, actually, their website's broken. It's being rebuilt. But very soon, it'll be back up. But it was, it was, it was, it would be well worth your time just to hear what God has done in their lives. And oh, my soul, they were, they were marvelous. So, transition. Ready? Go. We are doing a series, um, in the midst of a series on leadership from the book of Nehemiah. Um, and something I want to say, kind of a, a bit of a pregame before we jump into it. Here's the thing. God's word is chiefly a revelation of Jesus Christ. Every book, every chapter, the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation, is a picture of Jesus. It's, to, it's there to let us see his majesty and his glory. And it chiefly is going to do two things. These two things permeate all of Scripture. Number one, the Bible is going to give revelation and insight, explanation, example about our fallen nature. Something is wrong with us. And throughout the scriptures, that picture is being painted. Our badness and our brokenness are on display. Our sin, our badness, and our suffering, our brokenness, are being revealed throughout the scriptures. One of the primary roles of God's word is to be a mirror to show us us, right? That's what it's doing. Um, But it's not only that. It is also showing us God's solution to our fallenness. Right? In explicit statements, in hints, in whispers, in foreshadowings and patterns, God is constantly saying, this is what I'm going to do or have done about your badness and about your brokenness. This is how I intend to take the worst of all of your sin upon myself. This is my plan to redeem an undeserving people. This is how By unfathomable grace, I will invite you into unimaginable glory. Every book, all of scripture, has those dual purposes. Our fallenness, our our badness and brokenness, and God's solution to our fallenness. What he's going to do to redeem us. It's constantly revealing that God is going to redeem the world through a divine human who comes to the earth who will be crucified and resurrected and who will come to reign over the cosmos in grace and truth. In addition to that general purpose, right, that overarching thing to reveal our badness, his solution, all of it, each book also has a particular unique purpose, right? God can do lots of things at once. He's very, very talented. He's never doing just one thing and there's a lot of stuff going on. So in addition to revealing to us God's plan to redeem an undeserving people, he teaches us stuff about marriage, right? Because we're getting married, and that was his idea too. He'll show us a path of wisdom and saying, walk in it, right? Sometimes some some of these books will teach us about relationships, how we are to live in a world filled with conflict. Sometimes he'll impart to us financial wisdom, Sometimes his primary purpose seems to be to teach us how do we live in a world like this that is so shockingly filled with pain. Sometimes he teaches us how we are to show kindness to hurting people. But it's a practical book and it's filled with useful information all over the place, right? There's things that you can apply at work, things that you can apply at home, things that you can apply in your neighborhood or in church, 
And God's word is useful to us, right? Now, none of those secondary purposes are greater than the primary purpose, which is to reveal Christ, to show us our need for a savior, his ability to meet that need. But there is a ton of other value besides that great overarching purpose. And Nehemiah is the one one book out of the 65 whose purpose in the canon is to teach us about leadership. It contributes to the broader purpose, right? It shows us that God's plan for redemption, our fallenness, his solution, all that. They all do that. Praise God that they do. But Nehemiah is the divine handbook on leadership. It is a primary purpose to the book, right? It's in the canon to teach God's people how to lead. And to my mind, this makes perfect sense that he would care about this. He teaches us, you can use Nehemiah to learn how do you lead a business, how do you lead a church, how do you lead any, any enterprise at all? Because it's chock full of transcendent principles of leadership. So if you are a leader, if you run an organization, if you coach a soccer team, if you're in the military, if you have dreams for a nonprofit that you want to start, or you have dreams for a for-profit that you want to start, or really, if there's something in the world that you are dissatisfied by, and you want it to change, or better yet, you want to be the one who changes it, then Nehemiah is your book. Nehemiah is God's textbook on leadership, and if you will read it, study it, attend to it, roll it around in your head, and then do what it teaches, your leadership will improve. You'll make a greater impact in the sphere of influence where God has placed you. This is true if you run an architecture firm. It's true if you run a private school. It is true if you are the head nurse on your floor. It's true if you want to expand your law firm. And it just makes sense to me that God would do this. For all of history, God has used leaders to bring about his purposes. Moses was a leader and God instructs him on leadership. Moses, or Daniel, was a leader who had a dramatic outsized uh, impact. Deborah was a leader at one of the most just darkest, most miserable times in history. God raises up these different people, among them Deborah, to make a difference in the world. Whatever, whatever God is doing in the world, he very, very often does through the agency of leaders. And so, of course, he has things to teach us about how to do it. So I want you to think this morning, and really, maybe in the weeks to come, where do you lead? What is, at this present moment, your sphere of influence? And also, you might even ask the question, if I'm faithful with what he's entrusted to me now, what will he entrust to me later? Leadership grows. If we do a good job where he places us, he gives us something else to lead. Where is it for you? What's your enterprise? What's your practice? What's your division? What's your corner of the world? Where is the place that you get to push back the darkness, increase efficiency, become more effective, serve your clients and your customers, produce value? Where's the place that you get to make the world one notch closer to the way it ought to be. Whatever it is, wherever it is, this fear of leadership for you is played out, I think you need to know what Nehemiah has to teach. You need to know, you need to apply the things that God wants us to learn from Nehemiah. It's, it's one of the reasons that Nehemiah was written. Okay, so let's review the whole book real quick. We're gonna be in chapter four, but let's kind of get a running start. Chapter one, there's a lot of stuff there, but the one thing that I would want you to pull out of chapter one and and retain is that Nehemiah asks a question about a people and a place, okay? 
he asks a question. He says, well, tell me what's going on with the remnant. That's the people. And what's going down in Jerusalem? That's the place. And the answer comes back and says, well, the people are in disgrace. And as, far, as for the place, the walls have been broken down, the gates destroyed by fire, everything's in, in shambles, right? There's a people and a place. For all of leaders, this is always going to be true. Leadership is always about a people, individual, actual human beings, and then it's also about a place or a circumstance or a project or a thing, right? Both, the thing, both of these things matter, and your leadership will always have these dual realities. It's about a people, and it's about a place. So who are the kids on your lacrosse team that need to be coached, not just to win a game, although that would be lovely, but need to be coached to be prepared for adulthood, to accept responsibility, to work hard? Who are the actual people that you're coaching? Who are the customers you're serving? Then they need, they deserve, they've paid for and require a higher quality good and a higher quality service. Who are the, who are the patients who are the hurting people that are sick or that are injured on your floor and on your wing who need to be cared for? Leadership's always about people. But it's also about a place. It's about a project. It's about a building. It's about a circumstance. Because maybe those people need a hotel to stay in. And so you've got to figure out how do we do a better job building hotels that are going to be safe. You're worried about, I don't know, the manufacture of steel or the architecture that's going to allow people to escape if there's an emergency that they'll get a better night's sleep because of the soundproofing that you build into it, right? It's about a people, it's about a place. The worshipers need a place to gather and we really would like it if they could check out these glorious mountains out these windows. So we need somebody that knows how to make gigantic sheets of glass that if a kid runs into them, they're not gonna shatter and injure them. Do you know how to do that? I don't know how to do that, but somebody knows how to do that because there's leadership being done to manufacture what we need. Or maybe it's just that, maybe you're, you're, if your practice is law, then you're not just, it's not just people, but you've gotta build a practice that can efficiently and effectively advocate for justice for the people that come to your door needing justice, right? And so you've gotta like, we gotta figure out a system that's gonna do this well. It's always about the people and it's always about this place or the project. Leadership always has both issues. Nehemiah begins and he understands. It's a people and it's a place. In chapter two, you begin to see Nehemiah really embracing, all, I mean, it's like a checklist of good leadership, right? He formulates a good strategy. You watch him do that. He casts a vision to get the early adopters on board. Remember, he kind of travels around the city on a horse at night to get some guys to jump into the thing. He takes out a few men to show them the ruin because leaders need followers. If nobody's following, you're not actually leading. Nehemiah understood and he modeled recruitment he knew all about acquiring critical mass leaders cannot get out the door if they don't have the people money systems tools critical mass people money systems tools and we can watch nehemiah just go down the checklist where do i get the people money systems tools necessary to accomplish the task last week quig walked us through one of his favorite chapters in the whole bible nehemiah chapter three which looks at first blush like a big long boring list but is in fact filled with principles, right? You, talk, you walked us through it. It's like leaders don't just do all the work all by themselves, but there's got to be a distribution of the work to many people. If Nehemiah set out to build a wall all by himself, he never would have built the wall, right? Your leadership, okay, we, I, when I was in, in crew, I, we were trained, only do, only do what only you can do. 
And it's crucial that we, we pull, in, pull into the sphere the other people that can do things that you wouldn't be able to do, that we're gonna, we're gonna acquire more people. And we watch Nehemiah do that as he distributes the work around the wall, around the city. Nehemiah, as near as we can tell, he didn't touch a brick. He gets all the credit for building the wall, um, but he wasn't the guy that was like, you know, moving the wheelbarrows. Right? He had to spend time up in the crow's nest, leading, looking at the future, figuring out what needed to be done. And then he had to come to these people that he had acquired, these men and women that he had drawn into the thing, and he had to do basically three things. Set direction, resource, and develop them. And you can watch, and all this, you guys, comes straight out of Nehemiah. I've got to set direction, I've got a resource, I've got to develop. As a leader, your job is to be the coach, and your success is bound up in their success. It's not just about what you can do, it's about what you can support and help others to do so that the mission is accomplished. All of this, I mean, it's just, it's all just riddled through the book of Nehemiah as God is teaching his church how to lead. And I'm telling you, if you want to be a better leader, then Nehemiah is your book. All of which brings us to chapter four, which is where we're gonna camp out this morning. And I will warn you, the Nehemiah chapter four is a warning to leaders. If anything that I've said this morning makes you think, yes, let's go do that. I want to be a leader. Well, hold on. Because Nehemiah 4 is about why you don't want to be a leader. Because, Quig, what do leaders deal with? Conflict and drama. Conflict and drama. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed this? Constant, unrelenting problems. This is the nature of leadership. I think the essence, the absolute essence of leadership is problem solving. Problems are just part of life, but the leaders are the ones to be like, all right, roll up your sleeves. How do we get it done? Leaders see the problem and they devise solutions for it. And so Nehemiah 4, if you want to write a heading, constant, unrelenting problems. And if you want to lead, this is what you're signing up for. So strap in, all right? Here it is. Let's take, we're going to walk through it and we'll just kind of look at the particular problems that he faces and Nehemiah's manner of engaging them. And I think if we understand what Nehemiah is doing, I hope my, my, the gambit here is that that's going to help you deal with the constant, unrelenting problems in your own sphere of influence. All right, so here's what happens. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, When Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring back the stones to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they're building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stone. Okay, verses one to three. What's his problem? What's he dealing with right here? Ridicule. That's exactly right, Kathy. It's ridicule. Now, in the broad scheme of things, ridicule is relatively small, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's just ridicule. However, however, it, is, it can just be demoralizing, right? If you're doing something scary and somebody starts now talking smack, it can be, it's, it's going to get worse, so there's that, but it's bad enough as it begins, and he's got to deal with this mockery, this ridicule. It's not any fun, right? Now, when your opposition is ridiculing you, it's probably like, well, I guess you don't like what I'm doing then, do you, right? So there's a little bit you can extract from it, but it's not any fun. So Nehemiah presses on. Take a look at verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart. So he just kind of basically shrugs it off and he keeps going. But look at verse seven. I want you to notice something here. Who are the bad guys in verse seven? 
It says, when Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Okay? Notice the who. Notice who is giving them grief here in verse 7. Okay? Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the men of Ashdod. Just file that away for a second. Go back to chapter 2, verse 10. Okay? I'm telling you that Nehemiah 4, the heading here is constant unrelenting problems, but the problems aren't constrained to chapter 4. They both preceded and there's more to come. Okay? 2.10, notice this. Who are the troublemakers? Who are the bad guys in 2.10? When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Who is it? Sanballat and Tobiah. Okay, very good. Just write that down. Sanballat, Tobiah. Go to 2.19 and watch this. When Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What's this you're doing? They said, are you rebelling against the king? And then as we skip ahead to chapter four, it is Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod. Does anybody notice a trend? What's happening? It's growing. The more that they go, the more work that they do, the further they progress towards the accomplishment of the vision, the vision the more the opposition comes. Just a couple guys, then it's a few guys. Now it's like a truckload of people, okay? Now, one thing that you might have noticed is that your problems grow. Troubles increase, opposition comes. And sometimes, I think we're inclined to think that problems are an indication of failure. In my experience, far more often, problems are an indicator of success. In fact, it's very likely that your problems today are because of your success yesterday. If you hadn't won the bid, you wouldn't be in this mess, right? You wouldn't have to get the, get the job done. Governor Gavin Newsom, he just you know, won a recall dispute, whatever you call that, election. And so congratulations to him. But that success just cost that man a world of trouble because California is a mess right now. And his electoral success means he's the guy to solve it. Joshua was faithful, right? He was one of a very small number of people in his generation who were faithful in the wilderness. And because of that, he got to lead as the people conquered the land. And that was no picnic, right? Your successes are very likely going to lead you to tomorrow's problems, which means today's problems are caused not because you blew it, but because you did a good job yesterday. It's very often the case. And for Nehemiah, those problems are just getting started. The crowd grows and their, their creativity, their ways they can throw sand in the gears is just gonna multiply. Look at, look at what happens here. This is just God's book on leadership, 410. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. And in verse 12, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us, okay? That is three distinct problems. Don't just smash those up, but actually look at them one at a time. What's going on in verse 10, you guys? What's the, what's the issue there? They're tired, Nick. Like we're, we've been at this and you know, in the first couple of weeks, it was kind of fun and it was exhilarating. We had a vision for this, but now we've got blisters on our hands and it's not going as well as I thought it would go. I thought we'd be much further ahead than we are right now. And so I don't want to play anymore. 
Have you experienced this in your own life or among those that you're leading? The, I, was, I was trained in a particular leadership model that makes a distinction between aligning and motivating. And they seem very similar, but aligning is the act of getting somebody on board with the vision. There's a direction we want to go and you, you don't care about it. So we have a conversation and I show it to you and you're like, oh, that makes sense. And then you come into line and you're aligned to the vision. That's great. Problem is, you're very unlikely to stay there because life is hard and you're gonna drift back out and you're gonna start, or I'm gonna drift back out. Quick and I have a conversation. She's like, Tim, this is where we wanna go. And I'm like, great. And then a month later, I'm like, I don't think it's great anymore. This is hard. And then Quig's job is to come along and say, no, 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 but hang on. But here's what's, here's what's true at the end of the thing. And he's no longer aligning me. He's just motivating me. Like, bro, let's do it. This is worth it. Let's stay, like, stay in the game. In your leadership, what Nehemiah is dealing with and what you're gonna need to deal with is that your children, your students, your workers just find out, man, this is hard. And you gotta figure out how do I help them? How do I keep before them? That, that, yeah, I know it was hard. That, we talked about that on the first time, but it's worth it. Stay in it, all right? How about verse 11? What's, de- what's he dealing with there? He says, our, also our enemies said, before they knew it, know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. What's that? threats right I mean I I don't like to work when I'm tired and when a situation feels helpless but I really don't like to work when people are threatening to kill me if I do right there's a major issue here and he's going to have to work through this what do we do the people are afraid because there's a viable threat being made against them okay those two are a drag I think I think verse 12 is the worst this one's a little bit more nuanced it's a little more layered listen to this then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over wherever you turn they will attack us okay take 30 seconds and just talk to whoever you're sitting with all right what is this one about again it's a it's not rocket science but it's a little bit more complex take take murmur for 30 seconds what what's happening in verse 12 talk to each other what is he what's he dealing with And the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. You see it? What's going on here, you guys? What's the, what's the complexity here? It's their own people. That's absolutely right. So, so we, it's on one hand, you got the workers and they're tired and they, want, they don't want to do it, right? And then another group is like the, the opposition. They're like, you know, you're terrible. Your foxes are going to knock down your wall or we're going to kill you, whatever. This is a different group of people. So imagine this rail is the wall and we're trying to rebuild this wall, but inside the wall, inside the city is a bunch of people. They're not the opposition and they're not the workers. They are the people that the workers are seeking to protect, and they are the ones who are saying, stop it. We don't want your stupid wall anymore. So just stop it. They're saying, wherever you turn, they will attack us. And if you are laboring, if you are suffering, if you are getting up early, you're staying up late, and you're risking your life for a group of people that just say, I don't want what you offer. Just stop. Go away. I don't want you to do it. Holy moly, that is so hard to persist. If the very people you're seeking to love and serve are not only ungrateful, but they become your opposition. It's like, how do, I, how do I carry on when the people I'm seeking to serve don't want it, right? That is so incredibly relevant for leadership because constantly leaders need to solve a problem that maybe the people they're serving aren't capable of really understanding. 
and we've got to persist in it. This is a hard thing. Years ago, I watched a film, this is, I don't even know, probably 15 years ago, it was a Mel Gibson film, and his movies so often are full of brilliant leadership principles. Um, it seems like a, one of his v- production values is where can, we, where, where can we teach on leadership, whether it's Patriot or, or uh, uh, Braveheart, Braveheart rules, or uh, what's the one he did recently, Hacksaw Ridge. I mean, he, he loved to teach on leadership, and he did a movie um, called Ransom. Uh, this is several years ago. And it was about a well. He played the main character, a wealthy man whose son was kidnapped by somebody who just wanted money. It was just an exchange for cash, and it was a two million dollar ransom. And he goes to pay the ransom to the you know to the kidnapper, and something happens, and he realizes it becomes crystal clear to him: if I pay the money, my son is going to die. There will be no leverage, and I'm going to lose him. And so he stops. And he goes on TV and he piles up $2 million in cash and, and he speaks to the kidnapper and says, here's your ransom, here's the money and you're never gonna get one dime of it because I'm gonna turn this ransom into a bounty and your head is now worth $2 million. Dead or alive, I don't care. Do you know anybody that wouldn't turn you in for $2 million? And when he does that, everybody loses their mind. The FBI, the cops, everybody's like freaked out. This is a reckless path and you're gonna get your kid killed. And the opposition comes rapid fire against him. But he knows what he knows. He was there, he saw something. He had an experience that showed him, if I pay the money, my kid dies. The only way, the only way my kid survives is if I do this. And the whole world stands against him. But can you guess whose opposition is most painful for him? His wife. She's like out of her mind because she thinks she's getting her kid killed and she's at, she is also in her own way seeking to advocate for her kid and she is all up in his face. You have got to stop this. But he knows what he knows that she can't believe and he's got to persist. That is hard. That is incredibly hard when the very person you're seeking to serve is oppositional to you. That's what Nehemiah is dealing with. Have you dealt with that? Have you made decisions for the good of your company which employs your people? and they're angry about it? Have you made decisions for the good of your family and they don't like it and you've got to stay the course? That is really hard because leadership's hard. It is constant, unrelenting problems. And so what does he do? Take a look, 4.13. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points in the wall at the exposed places and posting them by families with their swords, spears, and, and bows. And I looked things over. I stood up and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He's trying to bring them back to the place. They remember that the Lord was on their side and they're laboring under his protection and his guidance. But he also is incredibly practical. Watch what he does. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. But look at verse 16. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall and those who carried the materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. And the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Bear with me a few more verses. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there and our God will fight for us. So we continued the work 
with half the men holding the spears from the first light of dawn to the stars came out. And at that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards there with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. Now, what's the mission? What's the goal? What are we trying to do here? We're trying to build a wall, right? We're trying to build a wall. But notice, when we, say, when we summarize it that way, and that's an apt summary, when we say we're trying to build a wall, we could forget that it's not just about a place. It's also about... People, it's always a people in a place, a people in a place, a people in a place. But if, all, if you get myopic and all you can see is the wall, then you're like, yeah, 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 just build the wall. But you can't build the wall if, at, the, you know, at the expense of your people. And so if you had to take half of your work crew and turn half of your masons into soldiers, is that gonna slow down the progress? Of course it is. But that's an acceptable loss because it's about a people and a place. And so leaders always have to be wise. How do we expend our time, our energy, our resources, these things that God has entrusted to us? If, ne- if Nehemiah had been so fixated on the wall that he forgot about the people that he's protecting inside the wall or the workers who are getting it done, then he would have gotten nothing. Leaders, you must keep your eye on the project. Keep it moving forward. Work with diligence. Have creativity and ingenuity, intellectual flexibility to overcome barriers but you can't ever lose sight of the people inside the wall. That's why we're building a wall. We don't just need a wall. We need a wall for the people. And so it is in your leadership. Who are the people, you guys? Who are the people that God has called you to serve? What's the place? What's the project? What's he calling you to build? Nehemiah can help you do it more effectively. It is God's handbook on leadership. Whatever your industry, whatever your circumstance, I would love you guys to stay with us as we go. And in fact, what I hope you might do is go back. Nehemiah uh, is really the first six chapters of Nehemiah that is this, this handbook on leadership. I'd love you. Go back and reread Nehemiah 1, 2, 3, and 4. Get you back up to speed. Load, load this into your brain and get ready for 5 and 6, which are coming. Nehemiah is God's book, and it'll help you in your leadership. And our goal is we, when we sat down and Quig and I were talking about where we want to teach this fall, so many of you have been entrusted, all of you really, in varying spheres, have been entrusted with opportunities to lead. And if God is interested in you being an effective leader, then we are interested in helping you with that. And I hope that you might spend some time in Nehemiah on your own. Make notes. What is he doing? How does this matter? How can I live this out? He cares that you would see your badness and your brokenness. He would love you to know his sufficiency to meet your need as a savior. But he also wants to help you lead in the spheres where he has placed you. And so this morning, if you are facing a problem in the place that you are leading now, we would love you to come down. Come down and offer it to him. Maybe there's some intractable thing and I don't know what to do. Come down. This front rail here is a place for you to meet with the Lord alone and to say, Lord, I don't know what to do. Give me wisdom. Show me how to go. Give me the courage to step through it. If you want somebody to pray with you, that's the straight rails on the side. We'll have friends there that can pray with you about whatever barrier, whatever burden you're facing. And you're welcome to come if it concerns your leadership. And you're welcome to come regardless of what's on your heart. If you woke up this morning and you don't care a thing about leadership, but there's a burden you're dragging around, come to him and offer to him whatever's on your heart. He loves you. He cares for you. He listens to you. And we would love to be your friend and ally as you walk through it. Amen.